pray together as we come to God's word. God, our Father, we worship you this afternoon and we exalt you as the creator and the redeemer and as the God who has spoken, the God who has made himself known, that we might know you, that we might be forgiven and free. Lord, as we open the scriptures together, would you speak, we pray and ask by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear. Lord, breathe new life into us. Encourage us. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. At two previous points in this series, I have mentioned the martyrdom of Cyprian of Carthage in 258 AD. And as he was coming to his trial that day that he was martyred, the Roman proconsul said to him, the most sacred emperors have commanded you to perform the ceremonies of the Roman religion. Cyprian replied, I cannot. Then the proconsul pleads with him, reasons with him, consider better of thy own safety, he says. Don't you get it, Cyprian? If you would just perform these religious rites, you could actually go free and you could enjoy a prosperous and good life of ease. To which Cyprian responds, obey your orders. In so manifestly just a case, there is no need of consideration. He is then sentenced to beheading, to which he responds, thanks be to God. And then he is martyred shortly thereafter that same afternoon. And this is the choice not only that faced Cyprian in 258, but that has faced thousands of Christian martyrs throughout the history of the church. Either give up your allegiance to Jesus and enjoy the life that you could have, or stay faithful to Jesus and suffer and encounter pain. And that choice in many ways is what is behind the letter of 1 Peter. It's not really a choice, it's more of a temptation for Christians. Do you want to give up your allegiance to Jesus and have an easier life or stay faithful to him but endure the consequences, whatever those might be? And these Christians to whom Peter is writing in the first century did not necessarily face uh, the possibility of imminent death, as did Cyprian, but they were encountering significant suffering and persecution that made their lives difficult and challenging. And that's why Peter writes them. He encourages them and urges them to faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of any circumstances, particularly the circumstances of suffering. So it's no surprise that as he comes to the conclusion of his letter, that he circles back to this encouragement, to this theme, and wants them to be strengthened. In the book of Ephesians, Paul prays that those to whom he's writing, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. And in many ways, Peter is encouraging that same kind of seeing in these final verses of his letter. This is what he longs for. He longs for these Christians and he longs for us, but us by extension to see three things that will help them to remain faithful under any and all circumstances. See God, see the enemy, and see the end. So see God, verses six and seven. Humble yourselves, Peter says, therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Sure, these verses don't explicitly say see God, but I believe that's deeply underneath what Peter is exhorting them to here. And there are three things in particular that Peter needs us to see if we're to hear this exhortation that he gives in these first two verses of our text. First, he wants them to see God's sovereignty over their suffering. 
that their suffering is not somehow evidence that God no longer sees them or cares for them or is in control over their lives or over the universe, which is often easy to assume when we're in suffering and hardship. And when they see this, when they see that God is still sovereign and over them, they can humble themselves. Or really the verb tense here means to be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. They can submit to God and to his will, accepting the suffering in their lives and not being even consumed by that, but continuing to live a life of praise and worship and a life of doing good as he has exhorted them to at many points in this letter. Peter's been making this point throughout his letter. This suffering that you're experiencing is not outside of the will of God. It is part of, mysteriously, part of the will of God. So verse 17 of chapter 3, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then the last verse, verse 19 of chapter 4, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is critical for all of us, especially in hardship, seeing the sovereignty of God over our lives and over our circumstances, however difficult those circumstances may be, is absolutely critical to being able to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, to yield to him, to trust in him, to stay rooted in him. This is what Jesus does in his own ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. He doesn't want that in the flesh. And he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He yields, he submits to the sovereign hand of his father in his life and trusts that God will work through those circumstances. My sister has given my family and me an up-close witness to seeing God's sovereignty in suffering, as I've mentioned before. And admittedly, her suffering is not because of her Christian identity, as it is in the case of those to whom Peter is writing, but it is, as ours often is as well, a result of living in a broken and sinful world, a world of cancer and disease and pandemics. In her Christmas letter from this last year, which was her first since her husband, my brother-in-law, died of cancer after 23 years of being married, she demonstrated this kind of yielding, and she learned it from her husband, as she says. This is what she wrote. She said, I'm very aware of God's abiding presence in my bones, but I often get mad about his version of the bigger story I'm convinced is being written through our loss and heartache. The truth is I'm selfish and I want my man back and the kids want their dad back, but perhaps our family's small part within this bigger story of God's redeeming work in the world is going to take on a life of its own and reveal its significance as time marches on. And then she goes on to say, when I was cleaning out Brant's things, that's her husband from our closet, I found a poignant journal entry he wrote in the middle of his journey through cancer. He so desperately wanted to stay here, but was asking God to help him submit to the greater story that he believed God was writing, whether that included losing his life or keeping it. She says, I'm slowly trying to assume that same brave posture to welcome God's glory in my life above all else. Do we see his sovereign hand in our lives? Whatever it is that we're walking through, Peter wants us to see this, that we might humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And the second thing under seeing God, there are three things here. The first is to see his sovereignty, but the second one is to see his power because Peter says, humble yourselves or be humbled under God's mighty hand. And that's a significant phrase. It's only used here in the New Testament, but it's used frequently in the Old Testament. 
particularly in reference to God's miraculous deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt. So we read in Exodus 13, 9, for with a mighty hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. God's mighty hand indicates his power to save, his power to deliver. And Peter wants them to see that power in order that they might humble themselves under his hand. And as they do so, as they yield and they bear up under whatever it is that God has led them into, this one with the mighty hand, Peter says, may lift you up or exalt you in due time, in the proper time. He will do this. He has the power to do this. Do you see his power? And then seeing his care for them is critical. Verse 7 indicates how they are to humble themselves or be humbled under God's mighty hand. It's actually not a new sentence or a new command, but it's a continuation of verse 6. Humble yourselves by casting all your anxieties upon him. It's so easy when we get pinched and pressed, when we're in difficult circumstances, to begin to fall back on self-reliance, relying on our own strength or our own resources to get us through whatever difficulty it is that we're facing and to use whatever means that we have at our disposal to do so. Peter instead wants us to cast our anxieties upon the Lord. Those things that are making, us dif- that are making life difficult or uncomfortable, hand those over to the Lord. Give them to him, which means to stay yielded, stay humbled under him, stay faithful to him, stay present to him in whatever you're walking through by casting those things upon him, trusting him that he will work through them. And then he gives the rationale in in verse seven for why we do this. He says, because he cares for you. What is the one thing that we are most quick to lose sight of when we're suffering with our relationship with God? It is the fact that he cares for us. That's what begins to get chiseled away out in our hearts when we're struggling and suffering and dealing with hardship. And Peter reminds his readers, this God, this powerful God, this sovereign God, this is the God who cares for you deeply. When the disciples are panicking in the boat on the sea, when the storm had been raised up and Jesus is asleep in the stern, they go wake him up and they say, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? And that's the same word for care that's used here as well. And Peter's saying, yes, he does care. He cares for you. How do you know he cares for you? Because of the brilliance of his love displayed for us on the cross at Calvary, which means that is so brilliant and so clear to us that whatever it is that we are walking through, and Peter's saying this to these Christians suffering in the first century, whatever it is that you're experiencing, you cannot conclude from that circumstance that God does not care for you because there's a different reality that we see at the cross that communicates unambiguously that he cares for you deeply. And because he cares for you, cast your anxieties upon him. Lean into him. See God's sovereignty. See God's power. See God's care for you. And humble yourselves under this mighty God who is sovereign and cares for you deeply. That's his first point. Second point in verses 8 and 9 is to see your enemy. So he continues. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What Peter is saying is this is your reality. 
That means that our lives are not just interfacing with the physical or political or social realities that we can see and that often do inflict harm or challenge upon us, but they involve in those encounters also an encounter with a deeper presence and power and force in the world of evil that Peter names here as the devil that often operates in and through those physical, political, and social realities. And that truth has not changed since the day Peter wrote these words. It is still true. And I do want to say there are certainly Christians who are too quick, I think, to, uh, to attribute whatever it is that they're walking through to spiritual warfare of some kind, when often really what they need is just a good dose of wisdom and courage and patience to do that which God has made clear for them to do in their lives. But there are also Christians, and I would say that most of us probably fall into this category, honestly, in this context, who think that we've lost, we've really lost sight of the fact that there is an enemy at all, that there is a spiritual dimension to our lives where there is warfare going on, and who've forgotten that we are opposed by an enemy. And that's Peter's point here is saying to those that he's writing to, you need to see that there is this enemy that's prowling around trying to destroy you. When we choose not to think about that, or we choose to sort of marginalize that reality in our lives, it's to the devil's great advantage. The singer-songwriter and curly-haired prophet Keith Green, who died at a, of a plane, in a plane crash in uh, 1982 at the age of 28, he wrote a song about this called No One Believes in Me Anymore. And in the words of the devil himself, as he writes the song, he says, Oh, my job keeps getting easier as time keeps slipping away. I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. You know, it's getting very simple now because no one believes in me anymore. I'll never forget learning the lesson of our genuine enemy, the devil, Many, many years ago, I was studying abroad in South Africa, and I'd taken some travel with another student who was also studying abroad from Canada, and we traveled through Southern Africa, and we got back to Johannesburg and jumped on a train to take an 18-hour train ride back to Port Elizabeth and back to Rhodes University where we were studying. And I started to read my, we were in a small compartment with a few sleeping uh, areas, just the two of us and one other young man. And as I started to read my Bible that afternoon with the whole train ride ahead of us, that other young man looked at me and said, sir, are you a prophet? A little bit flippantly. And then he began for the next two hours without ever really stopping to tell me about his uh, deep dive into the realm of satanic worship and service of Satan, the devil. It was a powerful lesson. We got off the train as we got uh, to our station and he said, he looked at me in the eyes and he said, I know it wasn't an accident that we met today. He was very evangelical about his faith in evil. A few years ago, I was having a conversation with a mentor of mine in ministry whose job it is to talk with and do soul care for pastors. And so he gets a really unique look under the hood of the life of the church in America. And I said, what have you learned? He had been doing it for about a year and a half at that, at that point. And he said, Mark, after 550 two-hour conversations over 18 months, my most significant observation is that our pastors grossly underestimate the power of the adversary to distract and discourage. We'd forgotten that we had an adversary. And Peter's exhortation here is to remember that this enemy exists, that he seeks to devour us, and the real exhortation is to resist him. This devil will use, of course, any method that he can to distract, discourage, or divide us. 
C.S. Lewis's screw tape, the senior demon famously remarked to Wormwood, the junior demon in Lewis's screw tape letters, quote, murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Any strategy that the devil can use to devour us, he will. But I believe that what Peter is most concerned about here for his readers, given the context within which this comes in verses six and seven, is the devil's common and effective strategy to use our sufferings to get us to doubt God's care for us, to get us to doubt God's goodness, God's favor over his people. The lie goes, if God loved you, if God was really powerful, if God was really on your side, then you wouldn't be walking through this. And that starts to get into us as we walk through hardship and suffering. So we begin to ask like the disciples in the boat, does God really care? When Peter exhorts us in verse eight to be self-controlled, sober-minded, to be alert or awake, he means that we are always to have our wits about us to always be aware and alert, to have our shields and our detectors up at all times so that if anything contrary to our life of faith in Jesus begins to sneak in to our hearts, we are aware of it and the alarms will start going off. Often what sneaks in, of course, first is doubts about God's goodness, God's sovereignty, God's love, God's care. And it's this common but deadly sickness that Peter wants to eradicate from those to whom he writes this letter. So the exhortation is to resist him, to resist this enemy, standing firm in the faith or in faith. Stand firm in your subjective yielding to and trust of this God who has displayed his love for you at the cross, never to be taken away. Stand firm in your faith that this God is over history and over the particular circumstances of your lives and even, yes, over your suffering. And remain faithful, firm in faith. That means entrusting and yielding, staying rooted in this posture of dependence and prayer and obedience. How is our enemy defeated? Let's go back to screw tape. He says, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him, that is, of course, of God, seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys, still yields, still humbles him or herself. The point here is that when, biblically, when someone suffers faithfully, the devil is undone. There are two paradigmatic righteous sufferers in the Bible. One is Job and the other is, of course, Jesus. And in both cases, Satan was defeated by faithful suffering. Job comes close but never gives up his yieldedness to God. And Jesus, as we saw, yields his will to the fathers. As they suffer faithfully, Satan is defeated. And brothers and sisters, as we do the same, putting up our guard, standing firm in faith, resisting our enemy by holding on to the goodness of God, the devil will be defeated. Job and Jesus are both exalted. And this leads us to our third and final point in verses 10 and 11. We're not only to see God, not only to see the enemy, but also to see the end see the end. 
This came up in verse 6 already, that as we humble ourselves, that he will exalt us or lift us up in due time or in the proper time. And as Peter rounds the section off and rounds off the letter, he comes in verse 10 to celebrate that coming exaltation. He says, the God of all grace who called you into his, his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. These four verbs point to a robust and full, restored sense of life. Think of those home makeover shows that take an old dilapidated home and restore it to something beautiful. After the restoration, it's no longer leaning over, no longer unstable, no longer covered in flaking paint, but it's been strengthened, made firm, established, or steadfast. In fact, that word for steadfast is the same word that's used for the foundation of a structure. And Peter is saying this kind of transformation is what God will do to us. This is our end. And this isn't a maybe. It's not a conditional statement. It is as certain as the sun rising. This day is coming. It's still a ways off. The writer of Hebrews says that those of faith had not received the things promised, but had seen them and greeted them from afar. And what Peter's saying is, I want you to see that which is your future coming. Jesus's past was one of suffering and trial. That is your present. Jesus's present is one of resurrected glory and strength and ruling. And that, my friends, is your future, is what Peter would say. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, we probably want that to be an hour, maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe even a year. But I really believe the right reading of this little while is the 70 or 80 or 90 or 50 years that God gives us on this earth. What Peter's saying is that the life in the broken world in which sin still causes harm and the devil still prowls around will be a life that includes suffering and pain and hardship. But there is a glorious wholeness. And that 70 years, 80 years, that is a blink of an eye when compared with all eternity, when you will enjoy this new kind of glory in life in your Father. This is our great hope. And notice on whom does this hope depend? How does this future come about? Peter is emphatic in verse 10 about this. The God of all grace will himself restore you. He adds that extra word, will himself restore you. As if to say, don't think for a moment that this future that you're looking forward to depends upon you or your energy or your, your ingenuity. It depends all and completely upon the power of God, upon the promise of God upon the word of God. And that will come to a certain reality in your existence in the future. That is your end. See it clearly. Because when you see this clearly and you begin to relish in that future that you know is certain, that living hope that you already see in some ways displayed in the resurrection of Jesus, that will transform the way that you suffer, the way that you spend your time and resources, the way that you interact with others. It will transform everything about your life, which is why Peter throughout this letter has emphasized hope again and again. It's why we've called this series A People of Hope, because to look to that future is to change your presence. And Peter knows that, and he drives his readers to see this again and again, and here as he wraps it up. And then his closing words in verse 11 are a doxology, to him be the power or dominion forever and ever. And it's as if he's doing an inclusio with verse 6. The same word is used there for mighty hand. That same word is power or dominion here. And Peter is saying, this is all about God's power, don't forget. 
Your hope is solid and secure and certain because the God that you worship and serve is the God whose power was unleashed in the resurrection of Jesus. And that same power, when Paul prays that the eyes of your heart would be opened in Ephesians 1, he wants them to see the power that is working in their lives which raised Jesus from the dead. That God of power is the God who promises this end for you. It's the God who is sovereign over your circumstances even now and is the God who deeply cares for you. So humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Yield to him. Submit to him. Resist your enemy. Stand firm in faith. Continue to trust him and walk with him. And he will receive glory and you will march on day by day by day toward glory. That is our calling. Back to the train for just a moment. As this man kept talking to me, uh, I just kept thinking, where is love in this person's life and world? And I got a word in at one point about an hour in, and this is all I got to say. I said, where is love in your system? He had no answer, no response. There wasn't any love there. It was all about you and what you could get from others and for yourself. But this God, this God who's caused us to be born again into a living hope because of his great mercy, as Peter began his letter, this God is marked by love. Forever displayed for us at the cross of Calvary, this God's nature and character toward us as his children is deeply one of love. So we are to cast our anxieties and worries upon him this one who loves us. And it is that love, his love for us, his care for us, that assures us that the restoration is coming. And it is the power that guarantees that it will happen. This is our calling. It is to yield, to surrender, to be humbled under God's mighty hand throughout this present life, that one day we might be glorified with his son, Jesus. Resurrected sons and daughters who reign with him in glory. And this is what Peter wants us to hear from his letter, to run with this Jesus, to walk with him, to trust in him all of our days. Let's pray. God, our Father, we cry out to you as those who long to be filled by your Holy Spirit, to be walking by faith, for those of us particularly who are anxious or worried or struggling and suffering, some of us from this very pandemic that we're living in right now, oh God, would you make your care and love known in tangible ways. And I ask that you would help us to be on guard against the way the enemy wants to use those circumstances to detract us from loving you, to move us away from your love. We thank you that you care for us deeply. We thank you that you are powerful. And we look forward, O oh God, to that day when everything will be changed. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.